0: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast
1: series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Growing concern over rising coronavirus cases, the Taoiseach refuses to be drawn on the prospect of a new lockdown before Christmas.
2: The response doesn't necessarily have to be similar to the responses of the past when we didn't have mass vaccination, for example
1: we'll be discussing rising virus cases in our schools and anti-lockdown riots across Europe. And later, the mystery of the Chinese tennis star and knives out at Manchester United as the famous club sacks a legend.
0: It's not for everyone and I've had the the opportunity and I'm so uh, honoured and privileged to have been been trusted to take the club forward. And I really hope that uh, I leave it in a better state uh, than when I came.
1: Get in touch with us on Twitter, our hashtag is TonightVMTV. Good evening. Now, coming up in a few minutes, we'll be having the very latest on our COVID crisis. But first tonight, the businessman Kevin Lunny has spoken of his kidnap and assault trauma in a victim impact statement read in court today. The special criminal court heard that the physical and mental scars will remain with Mr Lunny and his family forever. Our crime correspondent Sarah O'Connor has been telling me about the latest developments in the case.
3: Yes, Gavin. Well, the three men were convicted just two weeks ago of the false imprisonment and serious assault on Kevin Nonny on the evening of the 17th of September. 2019. Those three men were YZ, who can't be named for legal reasons. There are reporting restrictions in place. 40-year-old Alan O'Brien from Shamalia Road in East Wall and 27-year-old Darren Redmond from Caledon Road in East Wall. Now just to recap on what happened to Kevin Lonnie that evening. He was driving home uh, from Quinn Industrial Holdings in Derry Linn and County Fermanagh. He made the short distance home. He's driving up the laneway. He was ambushed by three men in two cars. They bundled him into the boot of a car, drove off at speed over the border to County Cavan, brought him into a yard in Drumbraid in County Cavan, into a horse box, and there he was subjected to 40 minutes of torture. His leg was broken, he was beaten, the letters uh, QIH for Quinn Industrial Holdings were carved into his chest, and he was doused. Uh, in bleach from head to toe and he was stripped down to his underwear and then he was driven to Balignan, County Cavan, and he was uh, basically dumped on the side of the road. Now, Kevin Nunney gave evidence uh, during uh, the trial, on day two of the trial, uh, he testified. And then today we heard that he didn't want to read in his his victim impact uh, statement to the court and Detective Garda, Linda Harkin, did that for him. And in that statement, he said that that the physical scars and mental trauma of what happened to him would stay with him and his family for the rest of his life. He also said that every day he thinks about the uh, effect this crime had on his wife and children and his family circle. Uh, He said they had been his his rock and his refuge. Uh, He has also said in his uh, lengthy statement today, it had been a long and difficult journey in this trial. I have the utmost respect for this court and everyone involved for their efforts to ensure the rule of law is upheld. And though today is a major and important milestone for which I am very thankful, I'm also mindful Uh, significantly that the journey to full accountability is not yet complete. And of course, there he was referring to those behind this campaign of harassment.
1: We also learned a little bit more today about the three men who have been convicted of this. What did the court hear about them?
3: Yes, so we heard first of all uh, about YZ, this man who cannot be named. There are reporting restrictions in place. Uh, we heard, of course, the court concluded that he was heavily involved in the abduction and torture of Kevin Lonnie, that he inflicted most of the serious injuries. We heard today he has 180 previous convictions, including one uh, for impeding the prosecution in a murder investigation. Uh, we then heard from his lawyer who said that there was it was like a pyramid tier in terms of the plot In relation to what happened to Kevin Lunny, that YZ would have been at the bottom of this tier, that he would have provided uh, the muscle that he uh, was the one with the dirty hands. Then uh, we heard about Alan O'Brien a 40-year-old from Shamalia Road in Eastwall who has 40 previous convictions and we heard that he doesn't accept the verdict in this case and 27-year-old Darren Redmond from Caledon Road in Eastwall. We heard that he has two previous convictions. He has never been in custody before, that his uh, family, there'd been a dark cloud hanging over his family for the past number of years, a number of deaths in the family, including a very recent one where he found his own brother in the house. He had died tragically of a heart attack in the bedroom and that. Uh, The defence lawyers obviously um, made submissions on their client's behalf in relation to sentence. The prosecution has asked the court to consider a sentence of between 15 years and life because uh, false imprisonment carries a maximum life sentence and that would be a headline sentence. Then there would be uh, mitigation factors involved and a sentence is due to take place on the 20th of December.
1: Our crime correspondent Sarah O'Connor speaking to me earlier. Next to the pandemic, where Austria has become the first country in Western Europe to go back into a full COVID lockdown today as it tries to battle rising virus cases. This weekend saw violent clashes between riot police and anti-lockdown protesters in Belgium and the Netherlands. A short time ago, I spoke to Politico's Suzanne Lynch about the weekend rioting in some European cities and today's new lockdown in Austria.
0: Yes, um, and it's the first time any country in Europe has gone back into lockdown. This is by far the most dramatic move by any government across the continent continent in in the last few months. And so far, they are the only country in the EU to have reimposed this full-scale lockdown. Uh, It will be in place, probably, they expect up to 20 days. Um, And other neighbouring countries close to Austria are also seeing their numbers up high. So countries like Slovakia, the Czech Republic. Now, They did introduce new restrictions on unvaccinated people today, but so far, as I say, uh, no sign that they're going to move to that full lockdown as of yet anyway.
1: Austria is somewhere that there's been a lot of tension about this because they famously have now announced that from next springtime they're going to be prescribing vaccinations for all adults. And imagine that's the sort of thing which has got a lot of people's backs up, not only in Austria, but also across Europe more widely.
0: It is. It's hugely controversial. Um, And just tonight in the European Parliament, there was quite a fiery debate about this issue. We had some MEPs uh, from the Green Group in the Parliament uh, really criticising Austria's move, saying that vaccinations should not be... Compulsory, uh, then you'd some MEPs from more right-wing parties saying the same thing, essentially for maybe different reasons. And um, so you're seeing a kind of disparate group of uh, politicians across Europe who are not happy with this idea of vaccine mandates. Now, Germany, which again is the biggest country in Europe, it's bordering Austria as well. Um, they have said so far that they are not moving to vaccination mandates and making them compulsory. Uh, however, there is a new government coming in. Angela Merkel is perhaps in her last month of leadership here. So there's kind of a, a very strange political situation there in Berlin at the moment. Um, but they have warned they, that they're not rooting it out. So I think a lot of people will be looking to see what Germany does next. It also has extremely high cases. It's already uh, cancelled some uh, of the Christmas markets. For example, the Christmas markets in Munich have been put on hold. They're still grappling with high numbers, um, but so far have not gone as far as Austria in terms of suggesting mandatory vaccinations.
1: Now, it's been a fairly tense weekend in a lot of uh, different European countries, particularly in Belgium and the Netherlands. Is there any sign of the the anger there about the prospect of further restrictions uh, abating anyway?
0: Well, it has been very tempting to say what we saw over the weekend was a kind of ripple effect. It started some protests in Austria, but then in the Netherlands and over three consecutive nights, uh, we saw violence, we saw arrests. And then on Sunday in Brussels, um, up to 35,000 people protested in Brussels on Sunday. um, And this did descend into violence. Now, today it's been quite interesting in Brussels, it's been kind of a, a pushback, some of the people involved in those demonstrations have blamed police, say that the police were too heavy-handed. So there's a lot of tension at the moment. And what's actually even happened today was that France has got overseas territories and it has had to send um, reinforcement to the Caribbean to the island of Guadeloupe, there are protests going on there, particularly about um, obligations for healthcare staff to be vaccinated. So there really is that sense of, of tension here. It, it, does mean, you know, it does need to be said that most people are complying with the restrictions, they're going with it, it's a small group that's protesting, but those groups are becoming more and more vocal and in some cases, we've seen that situation descending into violence. Now, on
1: a wider note, Suzanne, and I know you're there in Strasbourg this week covering the plenary meeting of the European Parliament, there must be a lot of uh, question marks being raised about the EU's digital COVID certificate. Because if this was the way in which we reopened international travel only inside the last five or six months, and now there's a question of uh, waning efficacy and people maybe needing a third dose, there must surely be questions about whether people's certificates maybe should have an expiry date on them almost.
0: Yes, Gavin, I think this is going to be the really big issue for the EU in the next few days and weeks. Actually, tomorrow, uh, European affairs ministers, including the Irish minister, um, are going to be meeting in Brussels. And um, this was kind of supposed to be a preparatory meeting, but actually they're going to be talking quite a lot about COVID. And then later on in the week, we're expecting the Commission to come forward with some kind of updated guidance uh, on the issue of travel, of free movement and the whole issue of the EU COVID digital path.
1: Suzanne Lynch from Politico speaking to me from Strasbourg a little earlier this evening. Now I'm joined in studio to discuss the COVID crisis by the Fianna Fáil TD Jim O'Callaghan and by the aim 2 leader Paddy Tobin. And gentlemen, we'll talk about the domestic situation in just a minute. But before we do, um, you heard us discuss with Suzanne a moment ago the idea of mandatory vaccinations now being prescribed in Austria, I think effective from February. Um, Jim, is that the sort of thing that Ireland would ever consider? Because it would imagine that there's some significant human rights ideas about the idea of effectively prescribing medicine to people.
4: Well, I'd certainly be concerned about it. I'd oppose it. I don't think you can force medicine or force vaccination on individuals. You may try to restrict their access, as has been done in this country at present. But once you get down the route of mandatory medical treatment on individuals, I think you'd have constitutional problems in this country. I think it would infringe the constitutional right to bodily integrity. And as you say, under the European Convention of Human Rights, I would be concerned about it as well. But I suppose, from the point of view of the Austrian government, they're not in as strong a position as we are with high levels of vaccination. And I suppose they're trying to see what can they do to force other people to uh, get vaccinated. But I don't think that's the right way to do it.
1: Well, domestically, Paddy Sabine, as Jim has just mentioned, we have one of the highest uh, vaccination rates in anywhere in the world, particularly in Western Europe, 93%. Yet the situation is as it is. Where do you believe things have gotten out of hand?
5: I think the, the the government have made a number of serious mistakes. Uh, first of all, with uh, hospital capacity. I just think it's absolutely incredible that we have not moved the dial whatsoever with hospital capacity. Um, in oh, 2000,
1: They've added about 1,000 new beds in the last year or in two,
5: so. In 2001, there was 22,000 hospital beds in the state. Today, there's 14,500. In 2009, they said there should be 560 ICU beds in the state. On Friday morning, Paul Reid said there was 300 ICU beds functioning in this state. We have a, a, a third of the number of hospital beds of Germany. We are, we're at, at the bottom with regards uh, hospital nurses. We have the fifth lowest number of, of doctors in the country. We have 700 uh, absent consultants. And, you know, you could, that's really starting to bite in the hospital sector. Well, well, and,
1: and all of which is true, but wouldn't it be the case that no matter how big your health system is, eventually, if you allow the virus to run unchecked, that it's going to fill whatever capacity you have, no There's,
5: There's no doubt you can't let the virus go unchecked. But if you have a stronger, like we're told, for example, that lockdowns are there to protect the health service. So if you have a stronger health service, you don't have to rely on lockdown as much. But absolutely, there are other tools you should use. An antigen test, for example, should be a tool uh, that should be used. And, and this, today, I spoke to people within the childcare sector, for example. Now, Stephen Donnelly's been on the radio saying that there is uh, antigen tests being used in the childcare sector. But that's not true. There was a pilot in some part of the child sector until October, and nothing has happened since. So there's no access right now Mm -hmm. to antigen tests uh, in the childcare sector. Yeah, can
4: I just come in and maybe I'll answer the question that you asked, Paddy, because it is unusual that we have 93% Mm. vaccination and yet we see levels rising high in the community. The the
1: teacher won't give a theory for why he thinks that's the case, do you have one?
4: Well, my own theory is it is inevitable after you open up a society after lockdown, and like we opened significantly in September and then in October, inevitably, COVID case rises are going to go go up. And I don't think it's inevitable that they continue going up because human behaviour can change but after you come out and you open up a society they will go up and if you look throughout Europe at present particularly those countries in Europe that aren't warm northern European countries, they are all going up. So I think, you know, Patter may criticise the government, but isn't, there's a certain inevitability to this that COVID cases will rise. It
1: didn't have to be inevitable. You didn't have to follow the timetable that there was for the reopening. And I made this point on air last week that originally when October the 22nd was a date for the reopening of the nighttime economy, that date was set because it was already presumed in the models that we would already be over the peak, that we'd already be in declining cases. And then the models changed and it turns out we weren't going to be past the peak. And yet the government still decided to open them up anyway.
4: But listen, no matter when we open, Gavin, cases are going to go up. Unfortunately, that's what we can see from throughout Europe. This is an extraordinary uh, natural disaster. This is an event like a hurricane. It's an extraordinary event. And what's remarkable is that humans, through the invention of vaccination and through humans pulling back on social interaction, have been able to control it to the extent that we have. But there has to be some recognition that it is a very difficult process to control. But what we can do now, and I've seen it even this today, and over the past number of days, we've been asked to reduce social interactions. That's being done. That'll have an impact. I think it's very important that we don't just view this as a binary simple choice between lockdown or not lockdown. We need to recognise that humans in Ireland are changing their behaviour and it needs to be given some time for the numbers to go down. But
5: but the frustration across the country is that the government seems to have two default settings. It has obviously the vaccinations and it has lockdown. Now, Killian de Gascogne came out in the weekend and actually said, we were naive to think actually that the vaccination alone would be able to solve this particular problem. So we need to look at other aspects of society that will help us mitigate against this problem. Now, antigen tests were, you know, one year, four days ago, the European Union said, use antigen tests. The Ferguson report in April s- said we should use antigen tests. Tomorrow, in the middle of the fourth wave, this government is going to make a decision on whether or not to subsidise antigen tests. And you know, it, it, right now, in, in whole swathes of this country, you can't get an antigen test for
4: love nor money. I would ask Fianna Fáil, where's the supply of antigen tests for the public at the moment? Jim? Listen, I think Padre makes a valid point there. There are two areas where I think we have been too slow as a state. One is in respect of antigen testing and accepting the recommendations that were in the Ferguson report that came out last May. Why do you
1: think they were so slow to adopt those?
4: Well, I raised it in the doll in June, because uh, I know Leinster Rugby at the time and other sporting organisations were trying to reopen with antigen yep. testing. Mm-hmm. The reason was because the NEFET and HSE representatives on the Ferguson committee uh, opposed antigen testing. I think it was but a But the sense- government
1: is sovereign. It's up to the government. To I know, I know.
4: But can, can I just say, had the government gone against Neffert and HSE at that time, there probably would have been much more significant. Problems for the government, but I recommend but, and I believe. No, no. Sorry, I haven't finished. I do want to see more antigen testing. I called for it from last June, and I think we are going to see it now. You think it should correct. be free? Uh, I think it should be a, a small charge should be and I think the Minister is proposing something such as one euro and I think he referred to the well, fact I
1: think, I think the proposal which, which we'll see more about tomorrow obviously because yeah. it's going to Cabinet but he's proposing a flat rate subsidy for each individual test so if an outlet currently sells them for eight euro they might be, then be reduced to five euro if an outlet is selling them for four euro as a lot of discount supermarkets are then when you factor in the well, subsidy I think it's basically the outside, one euro in
4: order to get them used properly they need to be very reasonably priced or else why, why not free? Well, they, they certainly, in the context of schools, and when we look at what's happening at schools with antigen testing, which has been brought in from next Monday, they should be free. But the concern is if they're completely free, that people will just misuse them. But I would like to see them, as was indicated by the minister, set at the price of about one euro. And I think that's see, what, reasonable. What,
5: one of the major problems here is that the, the government have actually uh, ceded governance to NEFIT in many ways. And I would, you know, sometimes I, I think of Stephen Donnelly as nearly the spokesperson for NEFIT. I know that sounds trite, but really what... what what you know, we've just heard there is that Neffet has made the decision and we followed in behind it. Look at booster shots, for example. So Israel decided uh, in July that it needed to deal with boosters because of its falling immunity. In this country, in August, it was obvious that we were having falling immunity. It took October... You think it
1: was, think it was obvious in I, August? I,
5: I, I think in, 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 the start, in, in, in late August, it was starting in this country that uh, immunity was starting to fall. In, in the, Those who were hit very, at the very start... And then in October, NIAC made a decision. Now at this stage, remember that over 2,500 healthcare workers who had been vaccinated at the start were already out. And yet, it took till the second week of November okay. for actually HSE yeah. to roll out boosters. Now, in every single stage of this uh, crisis, the government have been laggards. They've been pulled, kicking, and stream, uh, screaming into actually getting So, it's not to
1: delay there, because that's not an effort delay. That's a NIAC delay. And NIAC isn't actually amazingly, it, NIAC it, it, is it's not a state entity.
5: You're, you're right. But the government, the, these entities are advising the government, and the government. Have, this, as you say, the sovereign rights to make yeah. the decisions. But all of these but are. Do
1: you, do you think a government should go against the advice of an independent panel of vaccination experts, well, which well, is what they would be doing well, if they preempted what NIAC said? Well,
5: what I'd say is, is that we're told that the government are following scientific advice. But scientific advice has been very different in this country than it has in other countries. And even, you know, at the start of, of, of the pandemic, some of the NEFIT decisions were that we shouldn't use masks. Uh, some of the decisions were that we shouldn't use antigen testing. Actually, antigen testing but was. We, called, are, we okay, are. Can I have, just uh, say this? Can, no. I, can, I, can I just one point? I have to say that this, the statement we are where we are now drives me nuts because that was a statement that was used a lot during the banking crisis we are we are now because of the decisions of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael for the last year and a half and that's exactly why we're here at the moment at, at this there point is, there
4: is more to the spread of this pandemic than antigen testing and the slowness of NIAC and Pader is right NIAC was too slow but let's put it the other way had the government decided in advance of NIAC coming out and the government had said we're going to go ahead with boosters do you think the medical profession in Ireland would have allowed it to happen or would have gone ahead with it in circumstances where they say that the advisory immunisation group hadn't given its all-clear And the government decided that as
1: one of the reasons why it believes there has been such high take-up it because the, the government is always following the advice of independent experts and that they believe that that then instils public trust in the vaccine system, which maybe doesn't exist in other countries.
5: Well, I, I believe that the government should show leadership. It has to take advice for sure, but it has to look at what other scientists are saying around the world. Take ventilation again, schools, and, and, and schools is a big crisis issue at the moment.
1: And we'll talk about that more in part two. But
5: 13 schools have applied for uh, HEPA uh, ventilators. Uh, these are the, the, the ventilation mm-hmm. systems yes. that clean the yeah. air. 13 out of, of the, th- there's well over 3,000 primary schools uh, in, in the state. That's an extremely no- lo- lo- low number for a technology that we know that well, works it, it in is an area that's issue. under. And we will be
1: talking about Norwich, we'll have sure. the, the General Secretary of the INTO be with us in a few minutes. But uh, you said that you believe the government only really has two modes, which is either delay or lockdown. Do you then believe that, given the current trajectory, another lockdown is inevitable? I don't think it is uh,
5: inevitable, to be honest. I, I think what, what needs to happen is we need to start introducing antigen tests for access to hospitality. I think what, what's happened is the, the COVID test, for example...
1: Like, governed how?
5: Well, well, well for example, with the way they did in, in Denmark, though, so that you can go to a pharmacy, you can get a, an antigen test that will give you a 24-hour cover, and potentially that there are tents and town squares uh, by, uh, uh, staffed by professionals yeah. who are allowed to do that as well. Because remember...
1: The so not, go, not they, only then the vaccination certificate, but also proof well, of well, negative I, see, I
5: actually don't think the vaccination certificate is working, to be honest. Now, the, the, the government wanted to close Neffet down in mid-October. This is how blindsided the governments are. Mm. And actually, most people did believe that transmission wouldn't be as high between vaccinated people as it is.
1: Well, but it, it is. is reduced because you're less likely to, to get infected in the it first place then you have
5: a smaller infection window. Absolutely, so absolutely. There's no, there's no doubt yeah. that it's beneficial, but it's not getting rid of it. It's still happening. So right now, you can actually gain
4: access into hospitality well, okay, is, with Jim, COVID. The and way it presenting COVID. it, do you think the government are responsible for creating the pandemic. The government has had a good response to it in very challenging and difficult circumstances. I think when we look back in it, it'll see that the government has done a fairly good job in respect of a really difficult situation. You asked about lockdowns. Yeah, do you think it's inevitable? No, I don't think it's inevitable. So do you I hope think that then what happen. was done last week will be enough to... I hope so. Successes. I hope so. Like locking people in their homes is not a viable solution, and disaster. I believe that there's an opportunity now in terms of people are changing their social behaviour. Interactions are being cut down. We need to give it time. And unfortunately, there's a tendency in Ireland when there is an issue that's growing concern to jump in and say we have to act immediately. Fortunately, the government haven't done that. But and for I think a, think a we pandemic, you sort of do have to, to act immediately, though, don't well, you? Well, sorry, not in situations like this. We did act immediately back in uh, March 2020. We immediately in January 2021. Now it's different because we have 93% of the population vaccinated. If we go and
1: into a lockdown, how are we getting out of it? You could still have ICUs as busy in a, in a couple of weeks' time Listen, as they were we, in January. We, it,
4: it is not. When you Possibly look at it, there was 221 it. in ICU back in January. We're unfortunately and the optimistic at 100, projection now is 200 to 222. Well, we're at 126 yeah. today. It's not inevitable that cases are going to rise to such an extent that we're going to have those numbers in ICU. Well, so it's within that, our hands. When well,
1: the teacher says it's not a binary thing that you can do things other than lockdown, what else might be an option then?
4: Well, listen, we've seen as we've come out of uh, lockdown and restrictions, some restrictions being put in place with sort of limitations to people in social context, the number of people who can be at the table, the amount of time they can sit there. It's interesting though, in Austria today, they haven't closed schools. And that's an interesting discussion. Like we need to recognise what our priority has to be here. Maintaining the opening it, of schools is absolutely vital. Bring but there are other in. measures that could be introduced. Okay. I don't think we need to jump at them yet. I think we need to watch this space and just Jim see... Says. No,
1: I will bring Pratt back and, in. And,
4: and, uh, and just ensure that we keep an eye on it and not be panicked into I will bring response. you back
1: in, but just one, because Jim has mentioned schools after the break. We will be joined by the General Secretary of the INTO. He says that the COVID levels in schools have trebled. We will hear his thoughts next. Welcome back. Now, the primary teachers union, the INTO, has said that there is growing evidence that COVID cases in primary schools have trebled since contact tracing was stood down at the end of September. It has published the findings of a survey of principals, and it claims that the primary school sector is creaking at the seams because of the numbers of staff and pupils who are out sick with COVID every day. The union's general secretary, John Boyle, is with us in studio. Um, John, you might just talk us through the, the survey because the survey findings are pretty stark.
2: The survey we did, um, about 870 principals responded, so just over a quarter. Um, And we found out that 3.6% of staff are off sick with COVID in the first two weeks of November. Um, That's actually quite startling, the 3.6%, because it comes to about 2,000 staff. And if there's 2,000 staff off, um, up to 1,500 of them being teachers, uh, in that case, we need cover or else there's nobody to teach the children. So what happens um, in those instances? So what schools has schools been happening there. to date is that, for example, in um, 3,700 occasions in the first two weeks of November, in these schools that we surveyed, and I'm sure a lot more who didn't respond to the survey because the principal was too busy dealing with COVID. Maybe the, cla- the class would have had covered in a lot of those cases, but the cover wasn't brought in it was from inside the building. So some other teacher, the principal, he or she, or maybe a special education EAL teacher, home school liaison, they had to drop everything, come in and cover the class. And you you mentioned the fact that um, earlier in the programme about the virus being left unchecked. Now, it's our argument that when we had the highest number of children with COVID-19 at the end of September, since schools were open during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. nearly 3,000, that principals got a letter from the HSE saying, and the Department of Education saying, it's over to you now, we're pulling the plug. It's up to you to manage the situation. We're not going to support you any longer. And in the intervening seven weeks, the case numbers among the young children who are not vaccinated, they don't wear masks, they're in very large classrooms, not properly ventilated, have gone gone from under 3,000 to 9,000 this week. And that's the trajectory. How far do we have to go before we cry a halt.
1: Um, The Minister for Education has made something of a mantra by saying that schools are safe because of some of the mitigating measures that are there. Do you and your members agree with the idea that schools are safe?
2: We would have agreed all throughout last year that schools were as safe as the communities in which they were situated. But it was interesting that the ECDC, they had a report two weeks ago and the government has acted on that report because they're introducing antigen testing. But that was only one of the recommendations in the report. The the report said that the key measure is contact tracing. But the report also said that sharing a classroom is a high-risk activity. So that's the first time it's written down. So government is acting on that report. But at the same time when that was published, we were hearing this mantra that there were only four outbreaks in primary schools the week before last, that there were only 16 cases of COVID in primary schools the week before last. And I can understand why that's being said, because nobody is checking. So if you're not checking, you have to say something. So you you mentioned the couple of cases that you're aware of. So we need to get back to having proper supports for schools. Mm. And we have a load of solutions, Gavin, in relation to what public health can do. Okay. We have a lot of solutions in terms of what uh, the Department of Education can do to produce more bodies to cover these 1,500 absences, particularly from uh, the PMEs and the third-year and fourth-year um, students. And
1: we, we might get to some other year of solutions and tease them out in just a few minutes' time. But first of all, to, to you, Jim O'Callaghan, um, everybody accepts that it was very damaging and very detrimental for every child's development to have a, an otherwise healthy child kept at home, right. missing a fortnight of school, potentially right. a fortnight yeah. after a fortnight after a for
6: fortnight.
1: But the idea of having the largest single congregated setting, which goes to every day, half a million people of primary age in indoor classrooms, often with not great ventilation and with very poor guidance on what to do about ventilation, the largest also congregation of unvaccinated people, to decide a couple of weeks into the school term that you're just going to stand down contact tracing and take two months to roll out any kind of a substitution by way of antigen just seems extraordinary.
4: No, I disagree with you, and I think we can't overstate the importance of schooling to children. And what was happening in September, there were an occasion, 12,000 children who were out of school because they were close contact of somebody in the school who had COVID-19 and they were not displaying any symptoms. It was hugely damaging to them. Listen, I welcome the survey that the INTO and John have done. And obviously it indicates that there has been a rise of covid within school students and within teachers. I would have thought, unfortunately, that also is inevitable because there's such a rise in the community in general. Schools mm. are not going to be immune from what's happening in the local community. But schools could also
1: drive community transmission. So, of course, it's going to be more white. If it's more prevalent in the community, of course, it's going to show up in the school. But now we don't know whether know, the school is I actually the origin. I don't think
4: there was any evidence of that, that previously in the pandemic, that schools were driving the spread of it. I think asymptomatic children are, do not transmit the disease to the same extent as adults. Like That is something that has well, been medically that Well, that is the there's, government's there's,
1: stance on it, Padder, but I'm not sure if that actually holds up with international evidence anymore.
5: Well, there's no evidence now that the schools are the location of, of it because there's no contact tracing happening because we don't know what's happening in, in the schools. I think it was a big mistake to end contact tracing. I do understand that the 10 days keeping children out of school was, was, was too much. Uh, there's no
1: doubt about that. Um, and I peak, there was 12,000 people missing, but I've just pulled up the latest stats from the HPSC. Mm. And, and as of uh, the last weekly breakdown that they have, in the last fortnight, 8,870 pupils of primary age have tested positive for COVID. So when you include those yes. and the actual close contacts that they will have in classroom pods, probably likely to be a great deal more than 12,000. So when you, lose
5: it, when you lose control of the illness within, you're actually probably going to actually outpace the way it was uh, previously back in September. Um, I, I know my, in my, my own uh, kids' school, Uh, It's been rife. My own kids have uh, had it as well. Uh, and thankfully, they're, they're, com- they're coming to the end of their uh, time where they can go back into school now. But it is, it's is—it's an absolutely incredible situation. The contact tracing was stopped. And the replacement is not good enough. The replacement is a, is a pale uh, reflection of what needs to be done. But if the
1: replacement is a pale possible. pale replacement, then, then what do you do? Because in, in part one, you were talking about needing to embrace antigen testing. That's yeah. what the replacement, the replacement is. So replacement, if that's not good enough, in Britain, they're then antide- you not go back to exactly what we were doing in, well, in September. Th- the difficulty is for a, a, a,
5: a parent has to tell a principal uh, what the story is a, the principal then has to then contact uh, other parents. It is not as tight as the original system whereby the information was sent through the HSE to people's mobile phones and, and people had it in, in that regards. Um, and also look at what Britain is doing. They're antigen testing their, their kids twice a week in the, in, in the school setting anyways. Do you know what I mean? Not, irrespective of whether they're I, close contact. I, irrespective of whether everyone if, takes one. Absolutely. So like, and, and, and again, this government has had an allergic reaction to antigen testing.
4: It is way behind. We're, we're well, introducing uh, it, isn't there? You're complaining you're, about antigen testing being introduced into schools.
5: I, I, you're introducing it at a level that's, less than other countries have been doing it for a year for an absolute ways. year so like it, it, and that's the difficulty but can i will say that 31 percent of the the substitute days that the, the days that were lost mm. there was no substitute cover so substitution is a radical problem currently facing uh, the schools it, it was also a problem anyways uh, but it's a bigger problem now. now in the budget the government provided for a hundred extra places 100 extra places. Now, if you look at it, if it's 31 uh, places, there's been about 650 teachers, I think, that are actually out currently uh, in relation uh, to COVID right through the whole schools uh, system. That's only our survey now. And that's a quarter, a a sample of a quarter. And the government provided 100 places in the budget Mm. for substitution.
1: Well, actually, what I I found quite interesting about the survey as well is that even if you only had a quarter of the schools actually responding, John, that you had 3,700 children who apparently had absented themselves because they were COVID positive. And if that's only a quarter... The official total is only about 8,600. So it does suggest that a lot of children are being preemptively held back without necessarily actually having COVID themselves. Do you think that antigen tests should be rolled out more regularly as a general screening tool rather
2: than just for close contact? No, we don't, Gavin. We, we follow the public health advice, but we just wish that the public health people had taken their lead from Dr. Ferguson on the 1st of April. That didn't happen. They didn't have pilot schemes. If we had pilot schemes, we'd know where we were going with this. We welcome the measures that are coming in next week. We would have preferred if they were actually in this week, but they're not going to be enough on their own because we used to get a weekly report every week last year indicating what was happening in schools. Antigen testing programmes won't give us that. We need a mixture of what was there before plus the antigen, the antigen being the bonus. And what so, was there so because before... because it's not
1: the full return to, to full contact tracing well, you and see, the identities
2: I, of clusters, then the reports will still be missing out, I, you I, Absolutely. But I agree that having well children at home for two weeks, that that couldn't be sustained beyond September. I accept that. And at the time, we accepted that publicly. But what needed to happen was that the children who were close contacts... Of the 3,000, remember, who were positive back then when that move was was entertained, that the close contacts still went for the PCR and that when they got their negative test, as many would have, that they were returned to school within 48 hours. That would have been the halfway house which would would have enabled principals to be still getting public health support on the substitution crisis. Mm -hmm. The supply panels, there's 480 teachers employed... Thank you to the government for that. Mm. We needed that many, many they're, years they're ago. They're back to the mat though, aren't they? But at the moment, they are being stretched too far. We do need to cover these other absences due to COVID-19. And we have a plan in relation to student teachers. It's a simple enough plan. It's that there are 4,000 student teachers in there within two years of graduation, 18 months at this stage of graduation that we would take about so five... Doing a
1: postgrad or they're yes, in the third or fourth year. Yes, or else the third
2: years or fourth years. Okay. And we take 500 a week between now and mid-term break in February. Just 500, they only have to do the one week, five days. We don't want to see unqualified people teaching children. Mm. They can come in and supervise the children for that week and it takes the pressure off over the winter. That's one measure, and of course, people mentioned inspectors and other other staff who are directly employed by the department to do uh, continuous professional development with mm-hmm. teachers. Maybe that needs to be stood down for a few yeah. weeks as uh, well. Jim, do you have John's a-
4: suggestion is an excellent suggestion, and please say Minister Foley is going to be meeting the Higher Education Institutes tomorrow, and let's hope it's something that's going to this happen.
1: This is the same Minister Foley who said about a month ago that she wasn't aware of there being any substitute crisis at all, because nobody had called the hotline Listen, that no one existed. I know used from
4: it. speaking to the Minister, from her speaking apart, parliamentary party meetings, she's well aware of it. She's well aware of the crisis in substitution. And that's why tomorrow, hopefully, we're going to see student teachers available to fill the substitutions places.
1: Um, Padder, any thoughts on
4: that?
5: There's been a problem with substitution teachers in this state going back to about 2016. It's not brand new by any means. Um, I do believe that it needs to be all hands on deck. I think that the people who are involved in the inspectorate of schools should be involved. Um, I know of retired teachers who are prevented going beyond 51 days because there's a penalty to their pension. Uh, I, we need to make sure the schools remain open.
2: OK, but well, John boy. One last thing, Gavin. Now. Very briefly, John, we have to get The substitution right. is one solution. But if public health remain distanced from the school sector, everything is destined to fail. And that's the one thing we don't want to see happening. We want schools open safely. John,
1: Patter, Jim, thank you all very much for joining us. We're going to leave it there. Coming up, trouble at Old Trafford and continuing concern over the Chinese tennis star, Peng Shui. Stay with us. Back now. I'm joined by the Irish Suns chief sports writer Neil Le Reardon and by Martin Healy from extra.ie to discuss a dramatic weekend sacking of the Manchester United manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And I suppose from the outset, just to explain to declare some kind of conflict of interest being a Manchester United fan, but um, Neil, you might even just explain for people who aren't quite so tuned into all of this why a vacancy at Man United is actually such a big deal.
6: Um, well. It shouldn't happen, and it didn't happen for a long time at Manchester United with Alex Ferguson for so long. But now, in relatively quick succession, from their point of view, they've gone through David Moyes, Louis van Hal, Jose Mourinho, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who was initially brought in as an interim manager, but did enough to get the job on a full-time basis. And you know, last year they finished second, which was a, which was a good, um, a good finish from their point of view. But after initially doing okay this season, things have kind of fallen apart pretty dramatically in terms of heavy defeats uh, Liverpool Manchester City and worst of all against Watford where
1: do you think it all went wrong because there was a lot of money spent this summer on augmenting the squad so they really hoped to go from second to first so why has it gone backwards
6: uh, well there doesn't seem to be any great kind of thought gone, gone into the recruitment you know obviously Ronaldo was, was the biggest one in terms of the, his his profile but you know the argument is that you know he's clearly be, beyond his best and he can he can't score goals but he affects how the team plays and it um, it diminishes the team in terms of uh, the other players obviously Jordan Sancho and Donny van Beek haven't worked out in the way they would have liked uh, so th- there's a sense that he didn't have a huge amount to say over the recruitment and the influence that he did have um, you know he wasn't making the right calls
1: um, Martin, there's a, a real question, Mark, now about where the club goes, not only just in a kind of a, a staffing thing, but also because they could potentially be recruiting two managers at once because Michael Carrick is in on a caretaker basis, but they're looking to hire potentially an interim manager and also a permanent manager and potentially go and looking for both at the same time.
7: It's a very bizarre situation. You can't really expect them to have a, an answer straight away or to finding a replacement for Charles Carrick. At the same time, hiring so many coaches so quickly is a bit of an odd thing to do. Uh, there's some talk that they could look someone like Laurent Blanc to come in as an interim manager to the end of the season. Of course, he played for Man United briefly uh, 20 years ago. Uh, but when it comes to the longer-term ideas, they want, they're looking at more, you know, come more relevant managers like Mauricio Pochettino or Erik ten Hag from Ajax. So it's hard to see where they go from here because they they're such a, a, a weird squad, have kind of a mixture of players with different styles. And it's hard to see how uh, one manager can drag them all together.
1: That is, a, It's a fair point that there are so many different managers who are bought by so many different or players, bought by managers who have different outlooks and different ethoses for how they'd want a team to play. But is that not really the same as what happened in really any major club? There's no major club anymore that really has a manager beyond the aberrations like a Jurgen Klopp. A lot of clubs get rid of a manager after three or four years. So in, surely every club has a similar issue where the squad is populated by a lot of players that the current manager didn't buy. And United is no exception. That's true, but I think with United, it's, it's a little bit different than that.
7: Teams like Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City have a bit more of a coherent plan with their transfers over the course of a few years in recent times. But Man United's a bit more uh, scattershot. Uh, they haven't bought a new midfielder, which they've been looking for for a number of years now. It's very clear that they need a new defensive midfielder and yet they haven't gone for one. Um, and when it comes to the rest of the team, then like, when you, if you want to have someone in like, say, Ten Hag who plays a lot of passing progressive football, you have a team who are built for counter-attacking. You have guys like Rashford and, and uh, Mason Greenwood who are much better at playing on the break. And you have guys like uh, Varane or Harry Maguire who aren't very good with the ball at the back. So it's kind, of a, it's kind of a slightly odd mix of players, I think, if, if for for a modern coach to come in like Pochettino or for Ten
1: Hag. Uh, we do want to talk about the fate of the Chinese tennis player Feng Shui as well, but just before we do that, um, Neil, what does it say about the club's general outlook that they've replaced Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, they've a big Champions League game against Villarreal tomorrow night, and the guy who's going to be in the dugout is a technical director who's part of exactly the same regime that has apparently led them to this low point?
6: Yeah, well, it just looked like they, they wanted to keep giving Solskjaer as many chances as they could, and they ran out... Um, you know, ran out of luck essentially and they, could, they couldn't keep him on but they weren't really prepared for this I, there's a part of me that thinks this interim manager following Carrick is a bit of a ploy just to say, we know who we want. He might might not be available now. That makes me think it's Pochettino. And uh, you see the noises that come out um, that he he might be willing to take it mm. um, because he would have greater control, maybe, than he might at PSG. He's
1: the current manager of PSG. But who would want to leave a squad where you've got the likes of Lionel Messi and Neymar and Mbappe and go to Old Trafford to manage Scott McTominay and Fred?
6: Exactly, and that's the initial argument that came out. But as the day went on, then the noises were well, he'd have more control at United which if, if the case, um, that hasn't necessarily been the way it's done, but perhaps th- those are the kind of promises that he's been given to try and lure him away. And I can see from that point of view, if you had greater control, you might at least, you're, you're living and buying, living and dying by your decisions rather than somebody else's.
1: Fascinating to see where it all goes. As I said, we do want to talk about Peng Shui, the Chinese doubles, uh, the twice Grand Slam winning uh, doubles player who was seen uh, at an event in Beijing for the first time. Uh, you can see the footage now on screen taken by Chinese state media. Um, Martin, where this has become very interesting is that the IOC has gotten involved and is now almost, perhaps you could argue, painting itself as something of a referee to say that Peng Shui is actually okay when no one really knows whether that's true and if that's the sort of thing they should be getting into.
7: Yeah, it, it remains a mystery because the IOC today, the president spoke uh, allegedly spoke to in, in, a, in a video call, but we, we didn't see the video itself. There was only a, a screen grab of it put online. We don't really know exactly what it was spoken about. Uh, it, it's a bit of odd timing really for the IOC because the Beijing Winter Olympics starts in, starts in two months time. So this was an issue about about tennis. Uh, you know, the WTA have been very, very strong in what they've said about it. But now the IOC have kind of come in and mudd- muddied the waters of her a
1: fair bit. It's, it's a very, very. Bizarre would the situation. IOC be getting involved in it at all if there wasn't an Olympics coming up in China in three months? It's unlikely. This to was do twelve it. months previous. Yeah. Would they be anywhere near it?
7: She is a three-time Olympian, but it's hard to imagine why they would suddenly decide to get
1: on this. It's a very complicated issue, and there's no reason why they would want to get in on it. Uh, Neil, everyone knows that uh, sport and politics, no matter how much people like to pretend they don't uh, coexist. Of course, they do. But it, it's very strange for the IOC to be. Putting its oar into this at such a sensitive time,
6: I do. I agree because you know that the video, as we have said, it kind of proves nothing as to her uh, safety or security or whereabouts. Um, it reminds me actually of Mary Robinson and Princess Latifa in Dubai, you know, which she later regretted because she was essentially used by uh, by a state to sort of prop up their propaganda machine. And there, there's a, there's a sense that the IOC either willingly or unwilling is doing the same thing here you know they because they're putting it out there uh, that they have a kind of some kind of reassurance but they don't they don't like they have a video which has been supplied by china um, and you can be sure as hell they don't want any disruption to the Winter Olympics.
1: So there wasn't even necessarily any interaction, because we saw photographs of her and what looked like a video call between her and the IOC. Well, the a,
6: no, a back. representative from the Athletes' Commission did say that they'd spoken to him. But but even so, like you, you know, there's countless examples of people being put in these situations, where they they go on camera and say that everything's fine, when the reality is quite different. And you know, I don't think the IOC can say with any great certainty um, that. That she is safe and is not being in some some way held against her will or anything like that. You know, I don't. I don't think they can stand over that video and say that that proves that in any way.
1: Uh, Martin, it's also a very interesting time for something like this to emerge in China because, as you said, the Winter Olympics are to get underway in three months' time, and there will be lots of questions around whether world sport can have any role in trying to drag China towards some more transparency. It's, it's an interesting time as well because we have other events going on in countries who have regimes that have been widely criticized
7: like we are we now are a year away from the qatar world cup and we're going to see a lot more people speaking out against the qatar regime over the next 12 months um but when, when regards to China yes, it's, it's definitely an interesting time because they're getting ready for the winter olympics they don't want anything to get in the way of, of of this huge event it's the first time in 14 years they'll be hosting the olympics so
1: but does that suggest then that there's almost a vulnerability that if the world exercised some power now that because they want the olympics to go ahead so badly that they might actually be more willing to be dragged in certain directions perhaps
7: but the there's been very little, uh, I mean, the WTA have been very strong and they said they want to pull out, pull tournaments out of China. But in terms of the IFC, there hasn't been too much been said. Like, you look back in 1980, 1984, there was massive boycotts of Olympics from different sides. But for the upcoming Olympics, there's very little. There's, there's the American diplomatic, the diplomats have suggested they might not go to Beijing for the, for the, for the olympics but that's not exactly they're not athletes so it's not that big of a deal they don't have, have diplomats show up to olympics so i mean it, it, if you want to see change happening here you
1: might just need to some, see something a bit more strong from the officials from the ioc uh neil final question for you cash is king so if the wta decided that it was going to pull out some major events from china would that per- potentially be enough to, to force its hand a little
6: uh, i don't know it's going to make any huge difference to china it's probably the wta are probably more reliant on the cash than than china are in terms of that influence so i'm not sure they have as much power as they, as they think they would. I think China would be more worried about reputational damage rather than the, the cash aspect of it.
1: OK, Neil O'Reidham for the Irish Sun, Martin Healy from extra.ie. Thank you very much for coming into the studio. I'm afraid that is all the time that we have for our programme this evening. The programme is available as a podcast on all the major platforms. Our next news here on Virgin Media 1 is an on Ireland AM hourly update throughout the morning tomorrow morning. From all the late team here, thank you very much for watching. Good night and see you tomorrow night for another Tonight. Good night.
0: Is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Gigi Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. <laughs>